Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Andy J Podcast. Podcast. Now, regular listeners to the show will know that, well, we often have a handful of your favourite celebrities, but every now and again, something a bit special happens, and we have a whole show with one superstar, and I'm elated to be able to say... This week is one of those occasions. He's a comedian, an actor, an author, a writer, a broadcaster. He's just a man I'm so thrilled that we're going to get to know. It is the one and only Robert Webb. Robert, how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks, Andy. Thank you for that introduction. I feel completely ravished by it. I don't think I've ever been called a superstar before. That was probably, I think I've just peaked. It's all just a slow decline from now on. <laughs> it's all downhill from here. Well, Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that I was told that just before I hit 40. So, you know, that's <laughs> you're, you're slightly ahead of me in that. Have you discovered that? You're, you're 48 now, aren't you? I am indeed. Have I discovered that it's all downhill? Yes, it's a great question of managing a, a decline as gracefully as possible without, you know, too much shouting or crying. <laughs> uh, that's, that's generally the idea. <laughs> it was, you know, from a pure fitness thing, and I know that you're massively into your fitness now. I'm not a fitness person at all, but I, I was doing that thing where I can remember, distinctly remember, someone saying to me, well, you know, when you train, it's, it's easy in your 20s. Then in your 30s, it gets really tough. And then after 40, you might might as well forget it because it's just so <laughs> and it's stayed with me and it's obviously rung true because these prophecies tend to happen like that when you let them get to you don't they well i wouldn't know about um what it's like to train in your 20s or 30s because i didn't bother at, at all it's really <laughs> it's even though what you just said is completely true that i am quite interested in staying fit now um that's it just sounds so odd to me that you know that i'm a pe person now because uh, I never used to be from school onwards, you know, I was just not interested in running around. And I took a very aloof attitude to the whole thing. But um, I had a little bit of a uh, hoo-ha with my uh, health uh, uh, about a year and a half, half ago. I had to have uh, a big operation on my heart. And since then, uh, yes, I've been looking after myself a lot. I mean, really a lot better than, than before. So now I am somebody who puts on, gets all dressed up in um, Lycra. Not Lycra, actually. I don't know what it's made of. It's probably polyester. God knows. What am I, a fitness clothes manufacturer? No. Uh, but I get all dressed up in something stretchy. And, uh, and yeah, no, I, I run uh, three or four times a week, and I do strength training and all, 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 all kinds of stuff. Is it the skin-tight stuff, Robert? It's not the skin tight stuff. Okay. Not well, at least not on the outside. It might be skin. The underwear may be skin tight. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I think it probably is. Yes, but then it 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 often can be that way. Uh, but the stuff on the outside is pretty baggy and leaves a lot to the imagination. <laughs> if anybody is if anybody is using their imagination, which they're not, because I'm forty eight, as we said. <laughs> Is it Robert? Come on, level, level with me here. With with the under stuff, the, the skin tight stuff. Have you? Because obviously you've mentioned you've been getting into fitness, right? So so have you kind of noticed yourself in the mirror a couple of times and and started to go, oh, form. <laughs> well, I did that anyway. Whether I was whether I was in shape or not, uh, I'm definitely my I'm definitely my own type. I've spent a lot of time looking at myself in the mirror. Um, when I say skin tight, you know, I'm only talking about pants, which you know generally. You know, we don't. I suppose you do have non-skin tight pants. Yes, of course you do. Boxer shorts can still be very free flowing, can't they? But um, yes, no. Have I looked at myself in the mirror? Yes, of course I have. Of course I have. And you know, see, I've I've got a, like a, a working, like a visible left bicep for the first time in my life. Hey. Of course, I'm delighted. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm having a. I mean, I don't know what else I do during the day. Really, it's amazing. I get stuff done. <laughs> do you have you used that wonderful phrase? Tickets to the gun show? <laughs> no, not in anger, not out loud, and not sincerely. And in fact, not in any way. No, I haven't. 
but not now, even in my own head. <laughs> but now you have the noticeable left. But now bicep. maybe I now maybe I will. It's I mean it's maybe morning, it's darling. Show. Tickets to the gun show. <laughs> <laughs> it's in. It's on. I mean I love it. You've got to listen. If you've got to flaunt it, even if it's just to yourself in the mirror. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Robert, look, I, you've gone a lot earlier than I was expecting on on the big the big operation. But let's let's chat because I don't feel it's something we can go back to in like half an hour's time and go. Hey, you mentioned earlier about your operation. I think we should talk about it now because otherwise it would be weird to come back to it later. This was obviously a huge huge thing in your life. It, it's one of those things when we look at our chapters of our lives. This will be one that stands out really significantly for you as a defining moment, a make or break moment. In fact, a live or die moment. I could dress it up in many more ways. I don't know how many more, but I don't need to. It was a huge, huge thing for you. And this came about because of a, a standard medical that, that was happening before you started filming back again. That's right, yeah. It was the, it was the, they do a sort of routine medical. Uh, when uh, This is for the second series of Channel 4's back. And, um, and normally this is a very sort of perfunctory affair. You sort of look over there and cough and they get you out of the office as quickly as possible. It's just an insurance thing. And uh, not, <laughs> that's not to say that it isn't taken very, very seriously. But anyway, usually it's a very short uh, uh, medical. And anyway, the GP put his stethoscope on my heart and said, and pulled a bit of a worrying face, and then said, um, "And what, do you, what have you been doing about the heart murmur?" And I said, "What heart murmur?" And then um, after a few tests and CT scan and echocardiogram and whatnot, um, I had a cardiologist saying to me, "Well, you're not going to have a heart attack in the next fortnight, but uh, if this isn't addressed." In the next two or four or six months, this heart will fail. Um, so basically, what which got my attention. So basically, the problem was that uh, it's a congenital thing. It's a birth defect. Um, I had a prolapsed mitral valve, one of the valves in my heart that should be opening and closing, and pushing blood around my body to do its thing was just sort of jiggering around and not, you know, it had, it had gone completely wonky. So, sixty percent of the blood in one chamber was flowing backwards into another chamber. And the heart had grown and remodeled and changed into an extraordinary shape in order to keep the show on the road. And I had absolutely no idea. I mean, I didn't feel very well, but I thought that's what it feels like to be 47 and still not treating your body very well. I was still drinking heavily, smoking like a complete idiot. And just, I thought, okay, this is what I deserve because, um, you know, because of, of my lifestyle. But it wasn't a lifestyle thing at all, although it probably didn't help. Anyway, um, so it's not something I can fix with pills. Uh, so I had uh, open heart surgery. I was on the slab, not the slab. The slab's when you die. <laughs> I was on the operating table uh, and I didn't, from which they did not transfer me to the slab from which I woke up. So that's good news for me um, for about, I don't know, seven hours-ish. And then, um, and then it was kind of three months recovery, really, before I went back to do uh, the aforementioned filming of back um three more like three and a half four months but it was um yeah it was it was quite quite a slow and long recovery because it's a heck of a thing that they do to you on that table because they're kind of well i won't go into details in case listeners may some listeners may be squeamish but it's it's quite a big it's quite a big deal so it takes a while to to sort of get over it yes i've i've tried to picture this robert obviously i've, I've been aware of of your operation for, for, for a while and I've been kind of imagining. Well I just won't stop the reason is I won't stop banging on about it my wife has <laughs> she's heard that story so many times now she's like, are you going to go on the radio and start banging on about your operation again and she's mainly joking but yes it does come up and yes. so I've, I've got that story down to about 90 seconds now. <laughs> well, I, I have visions of the surgeons and the anaesthetists and whatnot sort of mid-op, mid just kind of taking selfies with you. You know, it's, it's Jez from Pink Show. Come on. <laughs> when are we going to get Jez like this again? You know. I did get told that um, by the one of the cardiologists who's working in the hospital that she heard from the surgeon that another surgeon said to him just as he was getting ready for the operation because my surgeon hadn't particularly heard of me, doesn't watch TV very often. But another surgeon had said to him, I love this guy. If you kill him, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> hey, <laughs> which was bought some very nice there. to hear. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I mean, he's got the really, selfie. You need a fan in the right place. Yeah, no. It was, maybe he did. Yeah, he's in there with all the sort of gore and everything, kind of exposed in his face there with a double thumbs up, going, <laughs> "This is this is Jez from Peep Show's innards." Brilliant. I wonder if he was giving you a monologue whilst it was happening, so that he could. You know, just <laughs> Who knows how these. I mean, you know, what kind of a person wants to become a surgeon anyway? I mean, they're not normal people. So, you know, who knows what he's doing? 
<laughs> what is normal though to be fair you know it's, indeed it's one of those difficult ones isn't it so rob obviously are you because i've been thinking about this obviously hearing that news ahead of ahead of the operation and so on obviously it must have been like a ton of bricks crashing down on your head etc but are you a, a sort of hypochondriac are you a bit of an overthinker at these sort of things did your head go straight to i'm gonna die or were you a bit pragmatic about it it was the really dodgy moment was the, the, the sort of hour and a half gap in between hearing uh, that something was really seriously wrong. And then I went for more tests and then I came back and then hearing this is exactly what's wrong. We know exactly what to do. We do this all the time. We're terribly good. We're posh surgeons and we're very arrogant and you're in very, you're in very safe hands. But the bit, the bit where, you know, they're doing the, uh, they're doing the echocardiogram and the technician calls the calls the other doctor in and says, look at this. And you hear him saying, oh, blimey, <laughs> you know, that was that's that was the uh, that was the scariest part of the whole thing, really. Um, probably scarier than the bit where just before the anesthetist, you know, uh, the, you hear this gurgling sound in your neck as the anesthetic goes in. That's a bit scary. But the scary, the really scary bit was something seriously wrong. Uh, and But before you hear that there's a plan, once there's a plan. You kind of go, okay, this is completely out of my hands. There's not much I can do apart from, you know, just walk quietly around at home trying not to have a heart attack. Uh, and this will get sorted when it gets sorted. And, and so once there's a plan, I, I felt reasonably calm. Um, but I wasn't, I mean, I, I'm, uh, I, I got described by a couple of doctors during this process as an anxious person. But <laughs> it strikes me that you would be, wouldn't you? You would be a bit anxious. But I don't think of myself as an anxious person. But maybe I, maybe I am. Um, I, don't, I don't know what I'm like. That's your job to find out, Andy. Well, um, uh, and thanks for letting me. Now I would be incredibly <laughs> anxious, Robert. I'd be, I'd be. I mean, yeah. how can you think of anything else? Uh, did you do? I'm sorry to kind of get so macabre, and I don't want to go macabre on you, but I'm just, I'm, I'm curious because of the circumstances. Obviously, yeah. Just so that our listeners know, you're a father. You're married. You've got two lovely long, young girls. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find yourself in those few days before the operation, knowing that you were going to operation and it was a massive one, did you find yourself sort of trying to install all kinds of life lessons into the girls and just telling them all kinds no. of extra important things? No, because I thought that would worry them. I mean, when I when we told them, um, poor old um, Dory, Dorothea, who is uh, no, who was eight at the time, uh, the first thing she did, she burst into tears because she said, is this because I keep jumping out and making you jump? Because she, she was in the habit at the time of hiding behind the door and going, boo! Uh, and I said, no, darling, it's not It's not because of that, sweetheart. Um, but uh, generally, I know the, the, the front that we wanted to put on, which was pretty much not, not that much of a front, it was kind of how I felt was, there's going to be this operation. Uh, it's very, very, very unlikely that anything's going to go wrong. Uh, and then daddy's going to be super tired and a bit useless for a few months. And then uh, then everything will be back to normal. So, I mean, on the quiet, we did. Of course, we made, you know, I checked my will was in order. Abby, my wife, uh, I gave her power of attorney and various power of, um, you know, switching me off, whatever the whatever the, whatever the phrase is. But, I mean, we, there were certain practical things uh, worth taken care of and I emailed my friends but I didn't say you know there was no kind of I love you you know you get there's a 99% success rate for this operation and it's only as low as that because most of the people who uh, who do it are quite a lot older than me um, so you know I wasn't I wasn't that worried I mean obviously irrationally I mean you can tell yourself that theoretically but irrationally of course of course I was scared and of course you know, you think uh, I'm not going to wake up or they're not going to be able to wake me up or I'm going to wake up in the middle of the operation or, you know, various things. You have all the usual worries. But um, no, as any parent will know, the, 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 the point is to, uh, I mean, 90% of parenting is distraction anyway. So you just have to, uh, so we have to pretend to be calm about it. And I, I, I think I was relatively calm, but obviously it's, um, it was a big old do. Yeah, well, I mean, as you've said, Robert, according to the, uh, according to the doctors, you're actually very anxious, so uh, you, you got that wrong. You weren't, <laughs> you weren't patient about it at all, my friend. You, yeah, I should pull myself together. Uh, come on, get a grip. Yeah. It's, it's only a massive heart operation for crying out loud. <laughs> what, what, what do you take us for? Um, Robert, do you find it sort of, I guess bizarre is the word, that this was something that you had been living with, it's something that, that if, if it had been left as it was undetected, it, it would have killed you. Do you find it kind of slightly strange that... You had previously just finished writing a story about someone 
who one of your characters had actually died from something because it hadn't been detected. Yes. Uh, it's, I mean, on the other hand, it's kind of when you're, when you've been a writer for a while, you get sort of used to this weird relationship that you have with your imagination. And, um, so basically, you know, uh, the story of come again, uh, my debut novel is that, uh, we have Kate, our heroine, uh, she's middle-aged and she, um, she just lost her husband, Luke, um, and uh, I won't do the whole plot of the of the book now. I will do the whole plot of the book at some point. Um, but um, but the point is, Luke um, dies from a, a brain tumor that's been undiagnosed for many many years. Yeah. Uh, so while I was writing about this uh, middle aged male who suddenly dies from an undiagnosed condition, I was a middle aged male with an undiagnosed condition. Mm. So I, it, it doesn't seem all that strange to me that that was my subconscious trying to tell me something. Uh, I just wish it had been a bit less subtle, um, but um, but there it is. And and I think and there are other things in the book that that come out like that. that I think quite often um, a writer has a main character learning something that the writer is actually trying to tell themselves. Uh, but you don't really you don't really learn that until you finish the book. And you and, and even then, I didn't really look at it in those terms. You know, I don't go. I've written a you know a work of light comic fiction. I wonder what I can learn from from that. I just want people to read it. Um, but yes, it's uh, it's spooky, and at the same time, it's it's actually quite mundane. But of course, you know, my imagination is, it, you know, it just comes. You know, our brains and bodies are not that separate, and my body was obviously in communication with my brain and saying there's something really seriously wrong. And that was that was at the back of my mind while I was writing. Clearly, yes, yes. Well, you you use the word subconscious there, Robert, and I. And I wonder, and I'm sorry if this sounds so twee, because I know you're a noted atheist. You know, it's I believe you. You know, you. Oh, I wouldn't want to be a noted atheist. Well. They sound awful. But, <laughs> I, but I, I don't. I, I'm not a person of faith. But I'm. But I don't go around them um, uh, laughing at people who who believe in God. But no, I'm, I'm trying to. I'm trying to grow out of various things like that. Sincere apologies for the phraseology. I obviously worded it wrongly. I did not mean. It That's wrongly. right. But you, you, you know what I mean. As in, you're not. You're not an open church goer. We don't see no, you kind no. of on the gospel choirs and all the rest of it. You you, 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 we kind of touch on how you, you sort of found faith for a while when your mother died, which I'd like to circle back to yeah. shortly. But but what I come back to the subconscious thing is, do this is going to sound strange, given that we've just mentioned religion and so on, but do you believe in, in guardian angels, for example? Because in a way, in, in, in Come Again, you know, there's, there's the guardian angel feel to the wife, girlfriend, able to go back and tell her dead husband that he needs to save himself, for example. Similarly, you've written a book, you know, which has this underlying condition, could that have been some sort of guardian angel figure trying to tap you on the shoulder going, oi, hang on? Um, no, I I don't really. I mean, I, you know, I, I see it as the, just, just the way my, my body was trying to talk to me. I, uh, I sort of, I mean, can I, can I just, I'll just briefly talk about, because the further we go without saying what's going on in Come Again, the more it might seem a bit mysterious. Um, so Kate has lost her husband uh, and she's in terrible grief, and she's not getting better. And in fact, she's she's become a danger to herself. Uh, and then one, they met. Kate and Luke met a long time ago in 1992 uh, in their first week at um, at university. One day, Kate wakes up. She's 18 years old, but she remembers everything. She's in her college room. She's in. This is the week. In fact, this is the day that she met Luke for the first time. So she's gone. She's travelled back in time for some reason, back to 1992. Uh, and she knows how Luke died. She thinks she's there to save him. She's going to try and do everything exactly the same, hence comedy. Um, but he's not the middle-aged man that she lost. He is still the annoying uh, 19-year-old English student that she first met, um, hence more comedy, hopefully. Um, so that's kind of that's where where we sort of start with Come Again. The, the idea of, uh, of her um, going back to trying to save Luke, I mean, yes, uh, Guardian Angel is, is one way of, of thinking about it, I, I just um, it's it's so much from Kate's point of view that she uh, that it didn't really occur to me that she doesn't really think of herself as a uh, as a as a savior or, or an angel. She's just trying to do what she thinks is the obvious thing to do, which is to warn Luke. But before she can do that, she has to try and get to know him, uh, despite the fact that she knows literally everything about him. She knows him better than he knows himself, yeah. um, which is often the way with men and women, anyway. <laughs> Men are just well, yes. We're not as clever as women on any level, are we? They just they're just much better than us. End of story. In some ways, yeah, <laughs> I'd go along with that. <laughs> yes, um, yeah. No, I'm I'm so pleased that you have 
you have lightly surmised come again because I, I didn't want to do it at all because there's so much going on in this book. I, I sort of fear saying anything to spoil it because it's got so many layers. It's a gripping, I mean, you know this, you've written it, you've, you've heard enough people tell you it's a terrific read. It's a really, really good <laughs> I haven't heard, I haven't heard enough of this at all. You can carry on forever. <laughs> uh, no, it's, I mean, it is, it's really, really great. I was wondering if, if, I mean, it feels like it should be a film. Well, it's being adapted for TV. Um, of course it is. It's, uh, uh, it hasn't been commissioned by a channel, but uh, it got picked up by a, a production company who are terrific called Firebird, and they found a brilliant writer, and she's uh, written the first episode, and I sent my notes back on that last week uh, for them to throw in the bin uh, or to or to use uh, as, as they wish. I'm just this sort of resource hovering in the background at the moment. Would you be in uh, And they'll they'll find a director and they'll pitch it to a channel. So we'll see how that goes. But, um, but yeah, no, that would be very exciting, but I didn't want to write it as a TV thing or as a, or as a movie, uh, in the first place, because I'm just, I think it's because coming out of, uh, the only other book I've written, which was my memoir, how not to be a boy. I enjoyed that quite a lot. And I always wanted to write stories. I always wanted to, since I was a kid at school, in primary school, I used to, you know, my favorite subject was creative writing. And a couple of times I was asked to, you know, read, um, read my stories out to the school because they were funny, basically. And so, you know, that I was doing that before I was writing sketches. Um, so it's always been an ambition to, to write stories. And so uh, I wanted to do that in book form because although working in television as an actor and, and, and a sketch writer, uh, it has been brilliant fun and, and you get to work with lots of different talented people, uh, it's nice to not collaborate. <laughs> Sometimes it's also nice to do something on your own. And of course, by the time the book is a physical thing, I mean, turning that Word document into a, a thing that you can hold and read is a team effort. And there's a whole you know, bunch of the editors and the, all the production people, marketing and all that stuff. Um, but while it's just you and the story, uh, you're the only person responsible for making this good. Uh, and you're your own boss. And if you want to spend 10 minutes worrying about this comma, then that's fine. And it's just a very, very different process from from when you're collaborating with people for TV. So uh, that's why I wanted to, it, you know, it was always going to be, you know, in the form of a novel first. Um, if, it, if it becomes anything else, then that's great. And they can take it away and rock and roll and do what they like with it and change it whatever that's all great um it'd be great it's great to have you know another pair of eyes on it another talent working on it but uh, in the first instance i wanted to write my book on my own and everyone else can go away <laughs> it's just me i don't have to have david mitchell agreeing with me that this is a funny joke i know it's funny shut up david um so it, was, uh, it, made, it makes a nice change after the previous 20 years <laughs> yes, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Well, I, I mean, it, I'd be absolutely startled if it doesn't become a massive TV show, to be fair, because there's so much going on and it's 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 such a compelling story. It just keeps going and it's a it's a heck of a page turner. I, I mean, would you be in it if they if they made it into a TV show? I seem to have forgotten to write myself a part. I mean, I don't think I'm I don't think I'd be uh, uh, good casting for any of the main characters. I mean, there is a, a cab driver who gets his gets his taxi stolen uh, yes, at one it. point. Yeah, I could yeah, be. Yeah. Or there's the um, uh, Malcolm the barman in the, the college bar. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I could do, like I wouldn't mind turning up for just to pull a pint of Scrumpy Jack. Um, or you could be on stage. I could be one of the people on yeah. stage. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's that would a, be nice. There's a bit of a showdown at the end of a really experimental and bad production of The Tempest. Uh, what is it? Oh no, it's a musical. Yes, They've turned is. The Tempest into a musical. <laughs> that's right. I could be one of the chorus. That could be yeah. fun. Yeah. Yeah, I d again, I don't want to say anything about what happens in that scene because people need to read it because it's terrific. But yes, you've got to, oh, come on, you've got to, even if it's a cameo, you've got to be in it, clearly. I think so, I think so, yeah. Yes. How Not To Be A Boy, you've, you've mentioned it, just really took the world by storm, didn't it? I mean, it was a Sunday Times bestseller. It's, it's still, uh, you know, being consumed by people in the, in the tens of thousands, I imagine. It's an absolutely incredible read. And it was, it's... It's one of those stories, you, you, you sort of say that it's, it's full of humour and fun and laughter, but it also, I mean, I was crying my eyes out on many occasions. I'm sure you can understand where and when. You are very, very good at being so incredibly honest. Well, thank you. Um, I mean, thanks for all of that, uh, Andy. But, I mean, it's, um, it's strange when people, uh, when I was talking about the, the last book, 2017-ish, uh, um, and people would say that it's honest or candid or, or brave or whatever. It was. It felt, I felt a bit like um, you know Jim Hacker in Yes Prime Minister when 
Humphrey says, this is a very courageous course of action, Prime Minister. And Jim goes, oh, is it? Oh, really? Like, I don't know. Really? Am I, have I done something brave? I hope not. Um, it was, <laughs> so I greeted that with, with this phrase with sort of alarm, really. I mean, I, yes, it, 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 I wanted it to be, uh, I mean, there's no, there's, there was no point. There's no point writing a memoir if, it, if it's going to be just a, a PR exercise. Of course, it uh, wants to be as honest as possible. But it's also, when it comes to other people, uh, hopefully uh, generous and outward-looking uh, book, um, not just because I don't want it to be sour and, you know, score-settly kind of thing, but um, but generous for the sake of being generous. And, um, you know, both the people who are no longer with us, like my parents, or and indeed the, the people who are, who are still around, uh, who feature in it quite heavily as well, they all... You know, my wife and my brothers and sister and uh, a couple of friends, they also early drafts and they got to uh, comment on it. I mean, apart from uh, one, uh, with one exception, everybody came back with a double thumbs up. Uh, but Mark, my oldest brother, he thought I'd been a bit too rough on our dad. I mean, the thing is, Mark is uh, six going on seven years older than me. So it's funny when you have siblings, I'm sure listeners will know this from no families like this or indeed their own families. You know, siblings are a few years apart. It, it, even though they come from nominally the same family, it, it feels the dynamic is so different that they, you know, when they were five, uh, their parents might have been in a very different place to when, you know, their younger brother or sister was five. You know, five or six years is, is long enough for a marriage to disintegrate, for example. Yeah. So my experience of dad was kind of different from from that of my two older brothers, which probably accounts for, my taking a slightly different view, but I, but you know, Mark said his piece, and uh, and I met him halfway, and I softened some of the language, and I changed uh, one or two bits because at the end of the day, it's only a book, um, and he accepted that, and that was all, that was all good. Um, but uh, yes, but it's as uh, it's as honest as possible. I mean, most of the jokes are at my expense. I mean, me being a pretentious teenager, and uh, my, my being a you know as a child of sort of countryside coward, and how I was scared of what and nettles and sport of any kind and how I wasn't very good at being a boy um, all because boys were supposed to be you know running and jumping and climbing trees and boisterous and you know I was completely mute and <laughs> uh, and very very shy and just uh, uh, I didn't feel that I could I could do this um, masculinity thing very well and that has implications I think well, I mean, one of the nicest thing about, things about the book coming out was that I got to hear from readers every day uh, one of the only one of the few good things about Twitter is that anyone can get in touch and um, and hearing from readers, especially male readers, to be honest, saying this really rang a bell with me and I didn't understand this masculinity stuff either and I was just pretending. Um, and and that it, it's actually helped some people, um, which wasn't, you know, it was only sort of collateral benefit. I mean, I didn't do it because I, I want to be useful, but I, you know, it's nice to feel useful. Um, it's a very it's a it's a very rare experience for a comedian to feel useful because uh, that's not really the point of us. But um, but it was a it was a very nice feeling. I think I, I think you shared a lot of people's childhoods. I think a lot of people could relate because of the way you explained it, and maybe not exactly the same thing, different circumstances, and so on. But the inner monologue that you were experiencing, I suspect there were an awful lot of people out there still are who needed to read that, needed to hear it, because you never know, do you? I mean, you everybody is trapped in their own heads, and unless you start sharing things, you've no idea if what you're experiencing is what everyone else is going through, or whether it's unique to you. Can we? Yes, exactly, and and I think I think partly because of the way um, boys, especially, are raised, the way we, uh, it's they're, they're given the impression that they need to shut down their, you know, negative feelings, uncomfortable feelings. Are it, we, we? I think we're getting better at this, but certainly speaking for myself, in the seventies and eighties, I was definitely discouraged from sharing negative or uncomfortable feelings. It was kind of you know, man up uh, and and close it down and switch it off like a light bulb, as they say in uh, the Book of Mormon, uh, which doesn't doesn't do you any good. It's, it's just a bad idea generally, and I think that's possibly why men, especially, can be slow to ask for help when they're in trouble uh, later on. Funnily enough, later this afternoon, I'm going to be recording an episode of uh, Celeb uh, Catchphrase. Say what you see, hey, hey. Um, and my nominated charity is Calm, which is uh, stands for the, the campaign against living miserably, and that's a, a mental health support group for men. Uh, it's a, there's a it's a free anonymous confidential helpline and web chat service, and I think men can be slow to to admit to problems like loneliness, depression, whatever it whatever it is, and Calm are there to fill that gap. 
So, uh, and of course, of course, it happens to women too. But I, but I think you know, seventy five percent of suicides in our country are male, uh, and I don't think it's a coincidence. Um, the way we talk to boys uh, needs to change. Yes, as a as a father of three young boys myself, I uh, I completely hear what you're saying, and uh, it's certainly something that I have been very very in tune with trying to do myself you know not expecting them to just automatically want to like football or superheroes yeah. or whatever you know but but quite the reverse just seeing although of, of, of course and i was you know keen to stress this now not to be a boy there's nothing wrong with liking football and there's nothing wrong with preferring blue no. to pink or any of that stuff it's just when it's when it feels like an order when it feels like you know this is how you do boy and there's no other way that's when uh, the trouble sets in. So, yeah, what I was trying to argue for, I suppose, was, I mean, in, in what is a very personal and subjective book and hopefully funny book, but if I was arguing for anything, it was for a sort of broader definition of how you go about being a boy and indeed how you go about being a girl. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, and you argue it beautifully. And it's, uh, it is, it's a, I think it's a read that should be on the syllabus. I think it's a read that everyone should should have to experience because it's it's a fantastic new view of the world that I think a lot of people, as I say, I'm completely aligned with the way you explain things and with the things you've gone through. And, and I, and I really do feel that it's, it's that important, actually, the way, the way you set out your, your story. It's, it's, it's really powerful. Can we talk about some of the, some of the outline parts to your upbringing that, that you share that are, there are a big feature that I think perhaps mold the person you are. Are you comfortable with that? Sure. Obviously, I'll, I'll, be comfortable, I'll be comfortable until I'm uncomfortable, and then I'll let you know. And then you let me know, and then, and then I'll back away <laughs> but, smoothly. But I've written, but I've written, I've written it all down in a book and published it, so it's not, it's yeah. not like much of it should come as too much of a, a shocking surprise. No, but it was more that it's a surprise that it happened to you, Robert. If that makes sense, you know, the the public perception of you prior to this book, I think, you know, was was a very talented, very successful actor. You know, Cambridge sort of cruised through life, aced it, you know, he's, he's got the whole world at his feet, he's a good looking guy, he's got, you know, got a, everything's going for him, it's all, you know, easy streets, this is what the, you know, this is what the outside view is of, of people who are famous and successful, you know, everybody mm. sort of just assumes they've had it easy, you know what I mean? Yeah. And actually, I'd say there's an, addif- an additional feature to you as well, which is because of Peep Show, of course, as the character of Jez and so on, you, I think brought to life that inner voice that nobody ever wants to sort of talk about and tell other people that they've got but of course we all have it and and seeing that on a on a massive show like peep show it was suddenly like oh okay so that's not just me hearing things everyone everyone talks to themselves do you know what i mean i think i think you took on this importance to people because you acknowledge something that we all do anyway well, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I can't take any credit for writing Peep Show, no, of course. But, no, um, but, but, but we associate you with it because you're one of the two lead characters. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, no, Peep Show had this, uh, this device where you, you hear what the, what the main characters are, are thinking. So, it, yeah, I suppose it brings you into a, an especially sort of, I, I guess this doesn't sound too poncy, intimate relationship with the, with the audience because you, uh, you really are inside their heads. Um, so yeah, I think that's partly why people grin at me in the street is because yeah. they, they've heard me expressing all of the of Jeremy's darkest secrets. I mean, the funny thing is when David and I came to at the end of a of a of a, a week of editing, uh, when they when they were doing the edit of a series of peep shows towards the end, they get me and David to come in and rec- record the voiceovers, and David would always have a couple of sides of A4, and I would have like half a side because I think <laughs> the difference between those characters is. There's very little that Jeremy thinks <laughs> exactly. that he doesn't just yeah. say, <laughs> whereas yeah. whereas all of Mark's stuff is internal. Uh, so there was, it was always quite funny that, you know, I'd be out of there in 10 minutes. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Um, OK, so so the things I wanted to talk to you about, obviously, one of the things that you, you raise very clearly and you mentioned that, you know, Mark had a, had a sort of challenge with how you described it. But nonetheless, you talk about the, the, the violence from your father as, as a child. You know, you, you were scared of him. And... It's interesting. I've spoken to several people now who have had similar experiences to you, and it, I always find it just heartbreaking and and startling. I, I, I can't even begin to put myself in that situation that that you must have gone through. I I'm, must point out as well that your relationship with your father then improved immeasurably, and and there was plenty of love there, etc. But nonetheless, those early yeah. memories, they they must have been very haunting. 
Yes, he, I mean, he was a scary presence. I mean, my mum uh, uh, and dad got divorced when I was five. Um, but my those early memories of living in that house when, when dad was around, yeah, he was he was a he was a scary guy. I mean, he wasn't doing anything out of the ordinary for someone of that time and place. You know, he went out. He was a woodsman. He cut down trees. <laughs> Literally, my dad was a lumberjack, uh, and he'd go to the pub. He'd come home. He was. My memory of him was that was that he was short tempered. Uh, that he used uh, corporal punishment on his sons in the way that that was. I mean, you were allowed to do that at school for crying out loud yeah. until you know the early eighties. You, you could come at an eight year old with a stick, and that was that was not just not illegal. That was sort of best practice. Um, so it was just a very different time and place. I'm only talking about you know slapping and spanking and sick here. Nothing awful at all. Right. Um, but but still stuff that if I imagine myself doing that to my children, it's just. A completely, just a completely different moral galaxy. Um, they say that you sort of, when you become a parent, you forgive your parents. I think in some way that's, in some ways that's true. In some ways, it's not true. Some, you know, in some ways, you take a much, an even dimmer view of what they were doing uh, than you did previously. But anyway, um, so that's how I felt about it. Um, I say at one point, um, uh, what is it? I shouldn't launch into sentences like I say at one point and then <laughs> having forgotten what it was I say at one point in the book I say something like um, uh, hell hath no fury like a, an angry son with a book deal um, but I'm not but then I sort of immediately contradict that you know I'm not out to have a go at dad uh, I'm there to try and understand him he was under you know a lot of pressure um, and again you know he, he wasn't it's not necessarily everyone's job to think outside of the box of their generation. You know, some people are just, you know, I'm sure I am in many ways, just going with the flow and doing what everybody else does. Uh, and so that was the, that was the setup, but it was, yes, I was, um, I was scared of him. And then, you know, my mum remarried and we moved away and, uh, and, but then when she died, when I was 17, I went to live with dad again. Mm. And, and that made for an interesting, an interesting time. Yes, that that took me by surprise when you said that you, you, you had done that in the book. I mean, it, it sort of, it was, firstly, it was lovely that actually there was the room for you to have that new relationship with your dad, with the one where you weren't scared of him and where you could say things. And, and obviously this furthers, this furthers across your career and there was all sorts of love that happened and all sorts of bridges that were built and so on further down the line. But yeah, when you said, you know, at age 17, you moved back in with him, I was really, I was surprised. I was like, crikey, okay, was not expecting that. No, I wasn't expecting that. Um, it was, it was. I mean, there are loads of different sort of factors at play. I mean, mum died halfway through my lower six, and so I stayed living with my stepdad, Derek, and my little sister, Anna Beth, who was only about two at the time, um, uh, for the rest of my sixth form until I got the grades. That I, I didn't get the grades that I needed because I was hell-bent on going to Cambridge because of Cambridge Spotlights, yeah. because, you know, loads of people that I love watching on TV, like... Brian Laurie and uh, uh, John Keyes and Clive Anderson, Clive James, and just Emma Thompson, just everybody. And it seemed that I really liked to have been through this uh, student comedy club. The only trouble with that was that you needed quite good A-levels and I uh, didn't get anywhere near what I needed. And so I knew that I had to retake. And the idea of living with Derek and Annabeth for another uh, for even for another few weeks was just, you know, I just couldn't do it. And also because, you know, that was the house that mum had lived in. And this, um, this turns up in, in come again, that when we first meet Kate, that she, she's lost Luke. And I think this happens when you, when you lose someone that you live with, that place just becomes, it's like their absence is this presence. I mean, they're just everywhere in the sort of the, the squeak of the sofa and the hum of the fridge and just everything reminds you of them. And just everywhere you turn, um, and I just didn't want to live in that house anymore. Um, and Dad was absolutely thrilled that I wanted to go and uh, live with him. And also, I think there was a, there was a pull as well towards your surviving uh, blood parents. I mean, I think that was a fairly natural thing that you know I just didn't know the guy at all. You know, he'd been uh, he hadn't been a presence in my you know I, he was there for birthdays and Christmases and the odd fireworks night, and that that was genuinely it. Uh, from five to seventeen, so uh, so I just wanted to know who this person was, apart from anything else. But it, it was it was a very it was a very emotional time and a quite a, a very difficult decision. But um, that's what I did anyway. Yes, yes, but of course, you know, grief does crazy things to us, doesn't it? You know, yeah, 
we don't know who we are when we're when we're hit with grief. Everything everything changes. It's um, it's and, and to go through it at seventeen at, a, at such a crucial part in your life as well, because like you say, you had a singular focus, you know, which was get into Cambridge. You want to be part of Footlights and. And yeah, well, that, in a way, in a way, I was kind of lucky that I had that as a kind of overriding, you know, plan. I was, I was, I was very focused on that. But in a weird kind of way, just being, just because I was focused on it, didn't didn't mean that I was any any good at doing it. Because I mean, you know, I thought I was going to retake in in November, and I did absolutely nothing to to make that happen. I ended up going back to school for a year. I had what is euphemistically called a third year six when I was there. I was nineteen years old because uh, I was old for my year anyway, and I was putting on this school blazer and sitting in the class of the year below. And, you know, that take, that planes a few edges off you. I, I was sort of, um, you know, gagging on humble pie. Uh, so uh, so all that happened. But then, but yes, over, I did have this overarching thing, I, at least, if I, and I did make it happen eventually. But um, uh, I had this thing to, to sort of keep me distracted and, and I was young. I mean, it could have been, I mean, 17 is rough, but it could have been rougher. You know, I think it's hard if, if you're, if, I don't know. I had a friend who lost his dad when he was eight. I think that's, that just seems incomparably worse to me. But anyway, there's always someone worse off. Um, but yeah, it, it felt rough because 17 was, I was just sort of getting to know mum as a kind of, we were just starting to have a, a sort of grown up relationship that I could I could talk to her about stuff that was just at the very beginning of that so that's when it that that's why it felt particularly cruel and as I say dad wasn't a big figure in my life and neither was Derek really my stepdad and so she was sort of my favorite person uh and um so that's why it was it was it was tough um but you know we get we get better and again in in come again you know the, the sort of trajectory of the book if, if you like i mean bearing in mind this is a piece of light comic fiction and it ends with a car chase and a punch-up and you know <laughs> it's got lots of sort of fun things going on but if it's a, to the extent it's about anything it's about that movement from grief to mourning grief is you know is not meaningful we don't learn anything it just hurts but eventually you you move into a, a sort of later phase of this process called that we call mourning and that's where you start to reintegrate the lost past with the new present yes. it's where you start to see that the present actually actually has something to say for itself and in come again um kate literally has to go and live in the past in order to re-engage with the present that's what it that's what come again is about basically but but um mainly it's uh, it's lots of jokes and fighting it's, there are lots of jokes and fighting. It is it is wonderful. When you when you talk about um, when you when your mum died, there's there's an expression you use. I'm not going to quote it exactly because that would be crude of me. But the the, the essence is that you there's a moment when you realise that actually you now need to go and achieve for her. You need to almost become a superhero to to live for two people. And that sounds to me like that that was a massive driving factor in you getting the grades you needed, taking the challenges of actually going, right, I will resit this ruddy year because I, I want to do this. I'm not just doing it for Robert anymore. I'm also doing it for mum. There, there was that sort of, I was sort of painting this, sort of telling this story for myself. I think one of the advantages of this happening when I was 17 is that teenagers can be, and, uh, and in this case, definitely um, very romantic. And I was sort of, sort of romantically... Uh, uh, sort of seeing myself in this kind of heroic big screen kind of way. Uh, it's not just me. I'm doing this for this once for mum, which is very, you know, these, I would find that to my ear, that's terribly sentimental and, uh, and, and probably not a, in the long run, probably wasn't a good idea that I saw myself in those terms because you're just writing for a fall. But anyway, I think it probably was not that I had any control over it, over how I felt or how I thought about this stuff. But at the time, um, uh, that probably did help. Probably did help me. I mean, by the time you, the trouble is, by the time you, then you you get what you want. And I did get to Cambridge, and you've, if you've used this kind of, if you've got this kind of self heroic thing going on, the trouble is you might miss out on empathising with other people. If you're if you're wrapped up in this kind of I this terrible thing happened to me oh poor old me and yet I've risen from the ashes blah 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 and I managed to you know working class background state school went first person to go to university it's Cambridge oh my God I'm so I can't get over how marvelous I am you you're likely to to be to be a bit of a dick 
um, if I if I can use that word uh, on the radio. It's, you know, somebody's cat dies, you're going to struggle to have much sympathy for them. Uh, I remember this happening. Somebody was in tears because they're, of course, you know, this happens all the time. People get to university and that's exactly the time when the family pet dies yes. or their parents get divorced yes. or, you know, stuff that to me at, the, at that time seemed like small fight. But of course, you know, pain is relative. And if you if your mum hasn't died, if it's unthinkable that your mum would die, but you, but Charlie the cat has just uh, bought the farm, uh, then of course that's that's an incredibly upsetting thing. It's not like I was laughing at people whose cat had died, but I but I really struggled to to show any um, uh, any enough kindness, anywhere near enough kindness. So this this kind of you know it's me against the world thing. It's all very well, but I think it left me ill-equipped um, for. Um, for love, really, it, it left me um, badly prepared for for the world of human relationships. Right, I mean that changed, thankfully. You know, you, I mean, you're you're so yeah. self-aware, Robert. You know, just just listening to you talk now, you know, you, you're sort of. Do you analyse yourself a lot? Would you say? Uh, I, I I don't know really. I mean, I. Uh... I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I, I've had to think, I made myself think about that period of my life quite, quite carefully because I was writing a book about it. But I, uh, I, I don't, I don't constantly spend, you know, hours in, in introspection. I mean, I've been in therapy, I've been in and out of therapy um, uh, all of my life. I think there have been two or three periods where uh, that's been useful. So I suppose I've got the I've got the language and I've got you know the, the sort of the equipment to kind of think about things in 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 a reasonably analytical way, but um, no, I don't. I mean, I don't know why I'm resisting this. Actually, I don't think it's necessarily a terrible thing to spend time thinking about your own feelings. But um, in fact, I think it's a, it's useful to be able to name them and to be aware of what's going on, uh, and to because so that you don't end up you know your feelings don't become someone else's problem. I think it's it's good to be able to take responsibility for if I'm feeling afraid of something or ashamed or whatever it is, if I'm not careful, that might come out as anger directed at other, you know, innocent bystanders. And, uh, so it's, I think it's, it's a re I think it's perfectly reasonable to try and keep an eye on your own, uh, to be your own emotional detective, to, to work out why am I feeling what I'm feeling at this moment? And, Oh, it's because of that. Uh, and I think that's, that's probably quite a useful thing, but we don't, it doesn't do somehow uh, to talk about that, does it? I mean, for some reason, we even I can feel myself kind of going. No, I don't spend hours talking about my thinking about myself because it yeah. it feels selfish and it feels self indulgent, and that's a terrible thing to to accuse someone of. Um, but there again, I, I think that a certain level, a certain you know level of that is is probably useful. There's a shift in the psyche these days, though, Robert. You know, people. People are now encouraged to think more about themselves, to put themselves first, to talk about their feelings, to take days from work if they're just not feeling right. Not because they've got a headache, but just because for some reason they've woken up a bit glum and so on. You know, that is becoming much more recognised and much more acknowledged and, and rightly so, I think. I think there's a balance to be struck, isn't there? I mean, there's, there's still a part of me, you know, um, with my upbringing that, that wants to go, look, sometimes you've got to do the thing that needs doing, even if you don't feel like doing it. Right. And, but, um, but there's a distinction between that and for God's sake, pull yourself together. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, a, you sort of have to do it on a case by case basis. Don't you? I, mean, I feel myself kind of rebelling against any kind of, um, uh, if you're just feeling a little bit down, then it's okay to, <laughs> I mean, the way you, the way you, I'm sure you didn't mean to put it quite like this, but the way, in fact, you didn't put it like this. I'm, I'm, this is a caricature, but if you know that I'm feeling a little bit headachey, I, mu I must be allowed my me time. You know, of course it does, it can tip over into self-indulgence and into just being lazy, but you know, uh, uh, the rest of the time, some of the time something really bad is going on or something really, important is going on and you need to give yourself some cut yourself some slack um but it's it, thinking about yourself is not necessarily putting yourself first it's not it's being able to identify what the problem is doesn't necessarily mean you're only concerned about your own problems because sometimes you'll be in a position to help other people if you know what's going on with you and if you don't know what's going on with you you might cause problems for other people so it's not an entirely self-centered thing um, I think, you know, good mental health is benefits 
everybody. You'll, you've got more. You've got more time to, to look outwards and to be generous and to be you know kindness. And kindness is the is the name of the game. Really, it's the silver bullet. Um, it's the answer to pretty much everything. <laughs> yes, I think you've explained that brilliantly, Robert. And 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 you're right. You know, I, I completely appreciate what you're saying about the balance. And if I if I misworded the question, then my apologies. No, you didn't. You didn't. You didn't. You didn't. That was just that was just me. It was just like you know ancient conditioning going must not be self indulgent, must not be self indulgent. <laughs> um, so you know, I don't want people to think I'm you know some woke, lazy, awful man. Um, you know, that's you know that's the voice in my head sometimes. Do you care what people think, Robert? Yeah. Yeah, I wish I didn't, but I uh, I, I think I probably do. Uh, I suppose, uh, you know, I used to, I found myself withdrawing from, in fact, almost completely withdrawing from social media these days because it's just not worth uh, the aggro. Um, and I, when I was writing, there was a time sort of 2013, 15, 16, around the middle of that decade when I was writing lots of um, columns for the New Statesman and started getting very involved in politics and having very opinionated views on Twitter about the Labour Party and whatnot. Um, but I, uh, that was a really bad time for me. I don't know why I had to felt the need to do that. I felt some weird responsibility to do that. And I wish I sort of hadn't really because at heart I'm not a campaigner and I'm not a journalist. I'm not uh, I don't like debating. I'm a lousy debater. Uh, I got, I got. People were asking me to go on BBC Question Time, and I turned that down like four times. And I thought I can't think of anything more nightmarish because you know the moment somebody disagrees with me, I'm going to completely go. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And then just you know, I thought <laughs> any any edition of that program would just end up with me crying or shouting. <laughs> I am at heart, you know, an actor. I want people to like me. I mean, it's not, you know, that's why we do it. I mean, people, you, sometimes you listen to actors and they go, yeah, fame is, uh, well, you know, it has its uses, but uh, that's not really the point. The point is, you know, I just want to do good work. You know, it's absolutely nonsense. Of course you're interested in being famous. You wanted the attention. <laughs> you know, all actors and comedians, in my view, uh, something or other happened in their childhood or the circumstances were such that they have a kind of personality where they want the unearned love of strangers. They want people that they will never meet to approve of them. Uh, and that's as true of me as, uh, as anyone. So, uh, yeah, it's a, uh, I, I can't help thinking of it as a character flaw, but maybe it's not that, it's not so terrible. But yeah, I do, I think I do want people to like me, yeah. Do you like yourself? That's a horrible question. I, I feel grim for answering. It's a horribly, it's a horribly good question. I, I changed uh, I I think I'm all right. Um, in in so far as you know, I don't have any serious mental health problems, uh, I, which is almost the definition of not liking yourself. Uh, I, I think I must think I'm all right. I mean, I you know I, <laughs> I reserve the right to change my mind about me, <laughs> um, but you know I, I I hope I have a reasonably realistic view of you know my flaws and 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 strengths and whatever. Um, I think, you know, most people, most people are just farty humans uh, trying to do the right thing. Uh, and uh, that, you know, I would put myself in that vast, vast category of humanity. Well, and you have the newfound tickets to the gun show, Robert. So, I mean. You know. <laughs> Indeed. I, I should be kissing my pecs. Like, can you kiss your pecs? <laughs> well, I, I think mean, they'd have was... to be quite, they'd have to be quite big, wouldn't they? Yeah. I think, you, yes, it's the guns that you kiss, isn't it? Yes, right. That, or, or you, unless you've got incredibly long, malleable lips, then, then it's possible. Yes, possible, massive but... jagger lips. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even he would struggle, I suspect. But Surely. Who knows? I mean, I'd, I'd pay to see it if it could be done. I mean, that would be, uh, that would be exciting. What does happiness mean to you, Robert? Uh, while we're, while we're sort of on this slightly morose question of do we like ourselves and so on. What, <laughs> Which I always find a bit weird asking people, but it's it's also quite important to check in. I think what is what is happy to you, and, and is it something that you are, or you seek, or you you have, or or, or what? Um, I don't. I'm not sure if I go around actively chasing happiness because I'm. Uh, I don't know if that's. I don't know if how sensible that is. I think happiness happens when you're not looking for it. I think when you're engrossed in doing something. Uh, for me, I suppose you know, if I'm sitting out in the sunshine reading a book, um, that those can be really lovely moments, or you know, moments with family, or when you know, when I make my children laugh, you know, stuff like that. But yeah, I don't really, you know, excuse me, it just kind of uh, creeps up on you when you're not. I think the happiness is, is is this thing that creeps up on you when you're not expecting it, and and you don't really notice it at the time. Um, but sometimes, I mean, Peep Show is great 
for um, for that kind of. But you quite often, more than once, I think you heard both Mark and Jeremy saying in their own heads. This is it. This is me having a good time. I'm having a good time. <laughs> yes. And it's very, I don't know if it's my generation in particular or just everyone who, uh, that we watch ourselves, that, we, that we, there's this self-consciousness about, uh, you know, if you, the moment you notice that you're happy uh, is, is the beginning of the end for that moment of happiness because you, you, you're, so, you're conscious of it and, uh, and that, changes, that changes it, I, I guess, doesn't it? So you're, you're I think happiness, right. is something that you, happiness is something that you look back on. Um, uh, but but there are times when you you know you, I don't know you're out dancing or whatever and you and you know that you're having a good time and you're laughing because you're having a good time. I've I've, I've had that experience every now and again. Well, every now and again, twenty thirty years ago. But um, yeah, but actively pursuing it, I don't know. Uh, I think it's I think pursuing meaning, pursuing trying to find stuff that fulfills you. Uh, that's a reasonable way to spend a life, I guess. And happiness will sort of come as a byproduct of that, um, whether it's with relationships or, <clears throat> or you know, your hobbies or, or your work or whatever it is, you know, fi- finding some kind of meaning to life, finding some kind of, something that fulfills you, something that fills you up, something that feels nutritious, if you like, uh, is sort of separate from happiness. But, but I think happiness might come out of that. Um, I suppose that's, that's how I... I mean, it's not like I, I spring out of bed every morning and go, I must find some meaning and fulfillment, for God's sake. Uh, you know, I just stumble out like most people, not knowing what on earth's going on and not having that much control over what happens during the day. And Like I say, just bumbling along uh, like a party human, trying not to cause too much harm. But, um, <laughs> but if, there's, uh, if there's a, you know, if there's a thing to do, I, I guess it's to try and, yeah, fill yourself up with, with, with something that means something to you, you're if that makes us. any sense. Yes, you're you're one of us, Robert. You know, you, you you do what makes you happy, and and you know what makes. I mean, you know, for example, if someone if someone phones you and says, "Hey, Robert, listen, this is what we'd love you to do today," in your head, you can immediately assess the level of fun that is going to equate to, can't you? Can I? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I can certainly I can assess, I can certainly assess that. I think I'm I've come from a, a lazier point of view. I can assess how much of a shag that's going to be. To have to do, to have to do that thing, do I really have to? Okay, I'll do that then. Um, remember, just because I'm exercised doesn't mean I'm not 48 and I'm fairly <laughs> tired in my head. Kind of going, if I can get away with not doing stuff, uh, I I usually will. But for example, you know, you, you you've mentioned what you're doing this afternoon, and there must be part of you that goes, do you know what? I'm going to say I'll have a pee, please, Bob, and I'm going to laugh. You know this. <laughs> It's catchphrases, it's not blockbusters, but I, oh, but I, yes, uh, let's true. get up, come on, oh. let's get our catchphrases right. I've got, I've about got it so wrong, but catchphrases, I, the, the lesser yeah. sister of the, of the, of the, I don't know which sort of TV version of me is going to turn up, whether I'm just going to be very bouncy and enthusiastic or just very, I think I'll just let the, the general fear, because I am very afraid of that uh, I'm going to raise no money for this charity because I'm not actually very good at catchphrases. My children are much better, but they, they weren't in Peep Show, the idiots. So they haven't, they haven't been asked. Uh, so, yeah, I think I'll just let the nerves do the talking. Oh, it'll be great. Well, you could always ask to do two versions of it, like you do with Back, you know, and you could have, you could yeah. have sort of charming, delightful Robert and the utterly terrifying, potentially very hostile Robert and see which one, yeah. you know, which one does best. Yeah, I mean, that would be easier, you know, if I, did, if I, if I didn't have to be me, uh, that would be, if I was just playing the character of, uh, this uh, so-called celeb who turns up, and yeah, it would be great to 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 play a part. That's, I mean, that's a lot of what actors are interested in. They get to hide their own selves, hide behind this other character. That would be great. But no, I'm saddled with me this afternoon. So uh, who knows how that'll go? Oh, I hope it's a huge success, and I hope you make an absolute packet, Robert. You know, there was so much I thought we were going to talk about, and talk about in quite a lot of detail, such as back, such as peep show, such as what's coming next, and so on. And yet, we've gone down this lovely alley of feelings and personalities and so on and i really do appreciate it thank you thanks very much andy that was a really enjoyable chat if you're enjoying the andy j podcast we'd love a review in fact if you're enjoying the show why not tell your friends podcasts live and die on well often word of mouth so please tell your friends like subscribe review and share thank you planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.